Hi listener, this is From Ideology to Unity, a spiritual journey where we let go of ego and ideological doctrine in favour of meaning, purpose and unity as a whole. Right, so as you can see, I've got a new background. Hopefully you like it. Uh, I'm curious to see what you think. If you have any thoughts about it that you want to share, go ahead. Um, that is, if you're, if you're on YouTube, that is. I mean, if you're on a Anchor or something or Spotify, you won't be able to see this background. I've got, it's like Northern Lights sort of thing. Anyway, um, I am doing another reading of The Birth of Tragedy by Friedrich Nietzsche, which should be good. Um, yeah, where was I last time? Yeah, oh, yeah I'm sorry about like, Am I sorry? I've been slowing down my solo casting recently. It's because I'm kind of recalibrating my life, realigning, getting more present or something, I, something like that. Anyway, I'm going to carry on. I mean, I could just summarize where we were before, but honestly, I'm not sure I remember. It's like a month ago. I mean, the last episode was kind of about unifying the opposites of the um, Dionysiac and the um, Apolline, right? It was about those. I mean, it's been mentioned already in a previous in the first episode I did of this, but yeah, it was really about and how symbolically as well, like what they connect to, different aspects of artistic expression and even ways of connecting to the divine and spiritual alignment, like one being much more um a solemn inward access to the unity of all things, looking within, connecting to it purely within in a quiet sense, like you're retreating from the world and you're really just like looking within. Uh, the other one, that, that's Apolline. Dionysiac is much more, well, you're, you're doing, you're having like a ceremony, like a musical ceremony ceremony you're, you're an attuning to the spiritual vibrations via the music you know and it's and you're getting in touch with the harmony of reality by manifesting it um yeah the spiritual vibration around you sort of thing i, I mean that's a very those aren't the only ways that they um they can be manifested i know look, the book looks weird doesn't it Anyway, yeah, those, those aren't the only two ways it can manifest, but um, I, I, that's, that, to me, that seems like a way of representing it. Anyway, that distinction. So, uh, yeah. So, yeah, that more or less summarizes what we were talking about. I mean, there's much, I'm sure there's much more depth I went into, but yeah, I, I would say that summarizes it. So we're at seven. Of uh, which chapter is this? Is there even 
of uh, what chapter is this? The birth of tragedy itself. Okay, yeah. The rest was um, something else. So this is outright, yeah, seven. This is page 35 in this text. Anyway, we must, we must now call upon the aesthetic principles we have so far discussed in order to find our way around the labyrinth, which is how we must refer to the origin of Greek tragedy. I do not think I am making an extravagant claim when I say that the problem of this origin has not yet been seriously tackled. So, however, many, yeah, so part of it, the picture is obviously what the origin of Greek tragedy was, but I don't think it's just that, even if that's what, even if that how, even if Nietzsche himself framed it as such, I mean, there's a school of thought, this idea when it comes to literary criticism or analysis, whatever, that you just like, you literally just take it as purely what they're saying, as what, and try to discern what they intended. Um, and then there's the idea that you can obviously look at the time they lived in and stuff. As for what's maybe a bit of both, I think, but there is this potential possibility of reading too much into it. <laughs> Although that's something I do, isn't it? I, I can, I'm not saying I read too much into it, but I definitely, I'm reading a certain angle into it, but I'm willing to admit that's what I'm doing. So maybe that's okay. Anyway. However, many times the tattered rags of the classical tradition have been sewn together in various combinations and ripped apart again. This tradition tells us quite categorically that tragedy arose from the tragic chorus and was originally only chorus and nothing else. This is what obliges us to penetrate into, to the core of this tragic chorus as the true primal drama, disregarding the usual aesthetic cliches that that it is the ideal viewer, or that it represents the populace as against the noble realm of the drama proper. This latter interpretation, edifying as certain politicians may find it, suggesting that the immutable moral law of the democratic Athenians was represented in the popular chorus, always correct in its appraisal of the passionate misdeeds and extravagances of the kings, may indeed have been suggested by a phrase of Aristotle's. It can have had no influence on the original formulation of tragedy, whose, pure, whose purely religious beginnings rule out the very idea of contrasting the populace with nobility, as indeed they exclude the, the whole area of political and social concerns. But with reference to the classical form of chorus as we know it, from Aesculus and Sophocles, we should consider it blasphemous to speak of the idea of free sentiments of the constitutional representation of the people. Though others have not shrunk from such sacrilege, constitutional representation of the people was unknown to, classical, to the classical polities. And it is to be hoped that the ancient tragedies had no such pre-sentiment of it. So, yeah. What he's saying is the origin of tragedy is actually 
religious or spiritual, um, which I would say makes sense given what we discussed in the last episode. Um, it, the Apolline and the Dionysiac are related to the, the worship or the cults or Apollo and Dionysus, and they represent different aspects of the Greek world at the time and of the psyche and of behavior. Um, and that's generally what gods represented at the time. They, they were very much archetypal of different aspects of the overall whole that was um, the um, society, psyche, the cosmos. Um, interestingly, there's a somewhat dualistic aspect to this, or at least how it's framed by Nietzsche, this idea of the, the Dionysiac and the Apolline. And that sounds like it's um, deliberate, but also there's, of course, very much this idea of the integration of the two into something more. And if you get two halves and you integrate them together, well, that's the, that's representing the whole. And um, so, yeah, that connects up to the idea of um, the pantheon as a whole representing a united cosmos and the unity of all things, which, of course, while that unity is something that was tapped into through the Apolline or the Dionysiac, it was ultimately tapped into to a greater degree or truer degree through the integration of the two. So, and something that's been pointed out here is that you can't get to what Dionysiac and the Apolline and what Greek tragedy is really about, I kind of the combination of Dionysiac and Apolline. You can't get to that if you, you take the divine and you take the secular or the political, and you separate them out uh, in a sort of Descartian way, and you just sort of, well, Descartian dualism or something, something like that. Uh, if you do that, you're basically, you re you're either reducing it to, reducing something spiritual and something divine or, you know, something religious to, mere politics as a tool for political purposes or for the sake of a particular argument you're making, which isn't really doing it justice, it's just kind of bastardizing the whole concept for, for your own purposes. Kind of egoistic, I'd say, or egotistical or something. Uh, alternatively, it's kind of like, you're kind of almost not doing a proper um, you're, not, you're not really properly trying to understand the political dynamics because you're overly idealizing how it works according to a, a divine or spiritual or, or um, religious symbology. Now, it's true that spirituality can bring us some insights about how even the political world might work. But if you get too carried away, we might miss the, if you're too idealistic about it, we might miss that at least 
okay, the awakening might change things a bit, but in, for a long time, for thousands of years, there's very much, if you look at it in a realist lens, let's say if you look at international relations, for example, realism in international relations, what it says is that every state or polity is seeking as much power as possible, or at least that the actors involved are seeking as much power as possible and controlling the outcome. Uh, and technically, that is actually true in terms of how it's worked for a long time. And if you're like ignoring that fact and just saying, okay, well, we, we can make it all, we can transcend that to be all like towards a, a spiritual ideal or a, an ideal of all working together. I mean, I agree with that idea, but it's only really plausible recently because of that transition. Well, actually, I don't know about that. Technically, it was possible for a long time, but it was quite challenging because so many people are stuck in ego and the overall polity is made up of people. And if, the, if a lot of people are in ego, the overall polity will reflect that and such. And so the, the dynamics of ego, which are very much power seeking and seeking higher prestige, higher social status, those will play out. And when those dynamics are playing out in a polity, that means that the, those of the highest levels of it will be those who are most successful at seeking power and higher prestige and social status and wealth, etc. And when that happens, the actual policies and the approaches done by polities or states or whatever will reflect that fact. And that's why you get power seeking, if not services, self dynamics, often at the top levels of corporations and states and kingdoms, historically, as well as in the present. However, what we're going through is a time where we're moving into the age of Aquarius, if not actually in it. The new earth, the foundations of the new earth are being built as we speak, or potentially, you know, the, we're seeing the beginnings of it. It doesn't mean that right away we're going to be getting. The experience of 5D New Earth, obviously not, but we begin. We can begin to see that take shape as people start to see beyond the the dualistic opposition of us versus them, and it might be hard to see at the moment because there's still a lot of chaos and a lot of division. But I, I do genuinely see signs that people are starting to see that there's more to it than that. It might be hard to see because there's a lot of people uh, going along with what authority are saying. Uh, there's a lot of what you could say, you know, sheep behavior, which is a bit uh, derogatory, to be honest. But and judgmental, but nevertheless, there's a, there is that stuff going on. Well, that we, the negative things, well, that's the judgment itself, but those we can be blinded by the improvements, we can blind to the improvements if we pay attention to everything that's wrong in the world, so to speak. Anyway, that's enough of a tangent for now. Don't worry, I'll have another tangent soon enough. So, 
Um, much more celebrated than this political explanation of the chorus is the idea put forward by A.W. Schiegel, who proposes that we should see the chorus as being, to some degree, the epitome of concentration of the mass of spectators, the ideal spectator. This view, when seen alongside the historically traditional idea that the tragedy was originally only the chorus, reveals itself in its true colors, a crude and unscientific yet brilliant statement, but one whose brilliance has been preserved only through the concentrated form of its expression, the truly Germanic predilection for everything that is called ideal and our momentary astonishment. So what he's talking about with the chorus seems to be the chorus of the, the masses who view Greek tragedy or dynamics that reflect Greek tragedy. And to be honest, uh, I, I, I came up with this idea on this understanding that you could say the, um, the ego creates tragedy, writes tragedies, and the, the uh, higher self, let's say, or the soul, you know, in that, that it writes comedies. That, that there's a joyfulness to uh, divine connection um, and comedy and humour is actually joyous. Uh, whereas tragedy, you know, the ego is very good at writing a sob story. And if it's not doing a sob story about how it's a victim, it's about how it defeated its opponents and how glorious it is. Um, and if not that, it's how it's the saviour of the weak or the whatever, the republic, the whatever the hell. Um, actually, I'm referring to the drama triangle. Yeah, you could look it up if you're not sure what it is. But anyway, drama triangle, that might actually play a role in doing complete tragedy. But anyway, it's the dynamic of the ego, I would say. So, the Germanic predilection for everything that is called ideal. I mean, I can kind of know what he's talking about, but I don't, I'm not sure if that's, is that still true about German culture now? I don't know. Because um, they've got this, more, even more so than much of the West, they've really got a guilt culture, uh, uh, especially since World War II. Uh, they, they really like, you know, you go there and actually, I, I haven't actually experienced this, so, but I've heard, like, you, you go to Germany and it it's on holiday and someone's like, yeah, I'm sorry for World War II. I'm sorry for Hitler. And I'm like, okay, but like, neither of us were there. So chill, <laughs> but okay. Um, I don't really know, so I'll, I'll move on from that. We would, we we'll, we will be truly astonished once we compare the theatre audience, one which we know very well, with that chorus, and ask ourselves whether it is indeed possible to idealise from that audience anything resembling the tragic chorus. So there's this idealised, almost archetypal or stereotypical chorus. I feel like I'm missing something. Did he mention the chorus previously? 
I don't know. Hmm. I'll just deal with what we're saying here. We inwardly deny this, and we are just amazed by the boldness of Schlegel's claim, Schlegel's claim, as by the totally different nature of the German audience. We had actually all we had actually always believed that the true spectator, whoever he may be, must always remain aware that he is watching a work of art and not an empirical reality. While the tragic chorus of the Greeks is required to grant the figures on the stage a physical existence. Well, the thing is, like a lot of the time, if you watch fiction, while we know we're watching fiction, we often identify with the characters. Uh, there's some degree of projection. Even I, you know, I do that, you know, sometimes. Um, we find ourselves related because maybe on a, there's a, on some subconscious level, we recognize a unity that we have with everything. Um, but we, we understand it in terms of, we relate to someone who's going through a hardship, especially if we've gone through something some, that feels similar. Um, and different people will relate to different characters in the same show or the same play or whatever, right? Like just an example, right? In Game of Thrones, but you know, there are some people that they look at like Cersei Lannister and they're like, oh my God, such a bitch, <laughs> right? A lot of people have that mentality, but there are some people, they look at her and they're like, she's strong. And I, this is a very stereotypical example because I've got this idea that a radical feminist might like the idea of her, even though she's kind of not, doesn't act nice. Uh, or even while self-aware of that, I don't know. That's a probably not, that's a biased example on my part. But in any case, I'll understand. I think you can see my point, even if I didn't really use the best metaphor for it or whatever. Right. So there's this tragic chorus, and then there's the actual audience. And the question is, is it the same? Well, people can act on... It's like on a subconscious level, they don't fully, they forget that it's not an empirical reality when they're watching it, a play or film or even reading a book or something, because they get into it and get absorbed into it. And if you think about it, we kind of do the same thing when we live our lives, right? Even when we enter spirituality and we understand that kind of reality is assimilation and stuff, at times we can get carried away and sucked into things. Like, I mean, we can even get a spiritual ego or whatever, you know, or we, we lapse or whatever, you know, like it feels so real. And I mean, who's to say what's real, what real even is? Um, but yeah, there's this whole idea of that we're actually sucked into a play when we're not present. 
but I'm going too far away from what he's talking about here. The chorus of the Oceanides really believed that this was see that it is seeing the Titan Prometheus and thinks itself just as real as the stage god. And is supposed to be the highest and purest kind of spectator, one who, like the Oceanides, believes that he is Prometheus real and present on, in the flesh. And would it be a sign of the ideal spectator to run on the stage and free the god from his tormentors? We had previously believed in aesthetic audience and seen the individual viewer as being all the more skillful and more capable he was of seeing the work of art as art in an aesthetic way. And now Siegel's pronouncement tells us that the perfect ideal viewer allows the world on stage to affect them not only in an aesthetic way, but in a physically empirical way. Oh, those Greeks we sighed, they are turning our aesthetic on its head. But once again, we had come become accustomed to it. We repeated Skeel's dictum every time the chorus was mentioned. Um, so obviously, if we take the idea literally, it's blatantly absurd, right? We understand that. But at the same time, it is, I, I guess we can definitely consider that people can get sucked into what they're watching. And that's true. Maybe that's unison of opposites, or maybe that's a different point. Anyway, let's carry on. But the very emphatic tradition I mentioned before refutes Schlegel in this instance. The chorus as such, without the stage, the primitive form of tragedy then, and the chorus of ideal spectators are incompatible. What sort of artistic genre would it be that took as its foundation the concept of the spectator and whose actual form was the spectator as such? The idea of the spectator without a play is an absurd one. Is it though? Anyway, we'll carry on. Um, I fear that the birth of tragedy may no more be explained with reference to respect for the moral intelligence of the masses than with respect to the concept of the spectator without a play. And I consider this problem too profound to even be touched on by such a shallow, by such shallow interpretations. I am inclined to agree that we can't has have this, this shallow ideal of like, well, it's the perfect audience who truly believes in it as fact, or alternatively that, okay, it's just how the audience perceive it, full stop. Um, there's something to the whole dynamic that has more depth, more archetypal aspect to it, more, linked to the collective unconscious and psychology and a whole bunch of things that we can understand holistically. And I feel that perhaps to some extent anyway, Nietzsche explores this and we'll see what he says about it. So an, infinite new, an infinitely more valuable insight into the meaning of the chorus was put forth by Schiller in the famous preface to The Bride of Messina, in which he sees the chorus as a living wall that tragedy pulls itself around to close itself off entirely from the real world and maintain its ideal ground and its poetic freedom. So something like the suspension of disbelief. Um, 
for some reason, I'm, I'm making me think of the um, the blank space in comics between the um, you know between each uh, what's the word? It's not slide between each picture, you know, and the idea that when the it's breaking the fourth wall case come along, like the idea that. You know the Joker being aware of the, that he's in, and he's in a, he's in fiction. And then there's this idea in I think it's in Doctor Who and, and something else as well. Decided the cracks between the walls and the idea that. Where am I going with this? No, no, no. It just kind of came to mind. I'm not sure exactly why, but yeah, that wall around the tragedy. It's almost like that white space around those each slide. I mean, time is an illusion, right? And so each is a set of changes that you see in a set of slides, right? And between it, that white could be seen perhaps as source, but it's also like the suspension of disbelief is maintained by that. And that's the means by even how it's structured so that you even get a time, dy time dynamic and perhaps the time, the delay in manifestation that we get in actual reality that we experience isn't everything happens all at once, because if that was true, then there'd be, there wouldn't really be, well, the experience that we have it where we gain experience. The delay is valuable for us to gain experience, especially when combined with the veil of ignorance, where we don't remember past lives. So, in a comic, it's like that too. And that there's a shroud over it where it allows us to view it without, with some degree of disconnect, where we know we're watching fiction. The suspension of disbelief is there. We might relate to characters a bit, for sure. I mean, that's important, that's vital, but we don't. I mean, I, obviously, we're not going to get so absorbed, but, but we, we, the immersion, there being immersion is kind of, you want immersion, but you want a break from believing it's from it being too real as well, because people like fiction for a reason. And to some extent, it's an escape from reality, but it's also a way to, reflect on reality from a different reference point, right? It's like a mirror to the collective unconscious. And without there being some divide or break between it and the observer, there's no mirroring. I don't know. That's an interesting idea. And I, I'm not even sure how I came to it, but okay. Okay. In which sees the chorus as a living wall that tragedy pulls around itself to close itself off entirely from the real world and maintain its ideal ground and its poetic freedom. It's a bit like the idea that if you're going, if you're doing Dungeons and Dragons or something, 
or if you're making a story so realistic, it becomes less of a story and more of a simulation. And some people like that, but there's a reason why we're into stories. Otherwise, stories wouldn't be a thing. We'd just be trying to simulate everything. And that, no, that, that's not how the mind works in, I guess. I'm not sure exactly why that's not the way the mind works, but I know it's not. So Schiller uses this as his chief weapon in this fight against the commonplace concept of naturalism, against the illusionism commonly demanded from dramatic poetry. While for Schiller, in theater, the daylight itself is merely artificial. The architecture is merely symbolic and the metrical language is idealized. Delusions still predominate. It is not enough for Schiller that we should only tolerate as a poetic, poetic liberty what is in fact the essence of all poetry. So he's saying that we, Schiller's kind of missing the point. Because he's like, there's something that's the mere essence of it. It's like, oh, we'll just tolerate it, I suppose. It's almost like he's projecting what he wants into it without understanding how it really works. And you'd think understanding how it actually works is the point, but it seems not. The introduction of the chorus is the crucial step towards the open and honest declaration of war on all naturalism in art. Okay. This is the kind of interpretation, it seems to me, for which our own age, convinced of its own superiority, uses the dismissive catchword pseudo-idealism. I, I fear, on the other hand, that in our idealization of the natural and the real, we have arrived at the opposite pole from our idealism, the realm of the wax museums. These are without art, like certain popular novels of the present day. These two are without art, like certain popular novels of the present day. I only ask that I should not be troubled with the claim that this art, Schiller's and Goethe's pseudo-idealism has been vanquished. Yeah, he asked not to be troubled that in that claim that um, pseudo-idealism has been vanquished. So it's like, Scientism seems to fit this theme that he's discussing here. This, I mean, the Enlightenment's great in certain regards, and we've really got certain technological advances and that have helped people out and brought higher quality of life, um, or at least in material aspects. Um, uh, you could say that there's more superficiality to some extent that um, we're losing our connection with nature, for example, especially with the way technology has, yeah, we're getting the steam engine, we're getting all this technology, but obviously we're aware of the effect it's had on the planet. And if there's less nature around, we don't connect with nature. Um, there's evidence that being around plants and nature is just good for your psychological well-being, and there's less of it around. I mean... It's a no-brainer that's going to have an effect on the psychological well-being of the majority, everyone, pretty much, right? Uh, there's a... Um, something that the left has been particularly prone to talk about is the idea of the atomization effect, where um, 
capitalism or commercialism or whatever, corporatism, whatever you call it, where there's this been this stripping away of meaning where everything has become about material gain uh, and possessions. And they kind of have a point. I don't say that's the be on end all of understanding what's going on, but that's a factor. Um, basically, um, there's this heavy focus on everything needs to be real, everything needs to be solidly backed up, and everything's like in a logical left brain way. We've got to understand everything, and it's not acceptable that if something isn't like that, it, it, that's just backwards traditionalism that's oppressive and, or irrational or both. And people think, oh, like the Crusades, right? The Crusades. Yes, yes. There were terrible things done. Banas Inquisition, the Crusades, um, just witch hunts, just unhelpful superstition at times. These things did exist. Um, those dynamics did happen. That doesn't mean let's just trample on anything that isn't utterly provable and utterly material and utterly real. Um, because then we're left with a desolation, a desert where we, I don't mean literally, but perhaps, I mean, if you look at how monoculture, agriculture, the way it just, all the chemicals they put in things actually desolates the, the actual farmland in the long run so that it can't really produce stuff. In the long run, it creates more expansion of desert, but in a symbolic sense, if you make there a desert of meaning and a desert of, the right brain symbolism and the, the symbolic, a symbolic wasteland, a where everything has to be hard, clear cut, logical, rational, the artistic, heart centered, exploratory. Um, aspect of experience becomes just hammered out of the picture so that we can have we're left with something that's a bit bland by comparison and then people have got all these coping mechanisms to deal with the fact that they're cut off from reality in a sense, and then people this artificiality to everything. And then people start acting artificial and start, they don't know what's wrong. They got this fundamental sense of unease. And often people end up projecting it onto other people. Those guys are the right why I feel this way. I feel unpleasant and they're triggering my sense of un feeling unease and they are the reason they are the problem well really they might actually just feel deeply dissatisfied in life and try to fill a hole with shallow things and ultimately that's not enough and their stress and their sadness or their anxiety ends up being projected onto other people and that's not to blame them for it, it's it's inevitable given how things have gone on. Um, and I do feel like this sort of thing is what's being alluded to by Nietzsche here. And obviously he said it a lot more concisely, 
But I, I, uh, I like to use things as a springboard, as you know, and either you like that or you don't. <laughs> so, yeah, okay. Um, it is certainly the case, as Schiller rightly saw, that the ground walked upon by the Greek satyr chorus, the chorus of the original tragedy, is an ideal ground, a ground lifted high above the real paths of mortal men. For this chorus, the Greeks built the floating scaffold of an invented natural state and placed, it upon, and placed upon it natural beings, invented especially for it. It was on this foundation that tragedy arose. And it was indeed for this reason that was, it was excused from the start from precise depiction of reality. Yet this is not a world randomly imagined to fit in between heaven and earth. Rather, it is a world of equal reality and credibility, as Olympus with its inhabitants was for the Hellenes. The satyr, the Dionysiac chorus, lives in a world granted existence under the religious sanction of myth and ritual. And I'll add that myth and ritual and symbolic are a part of life, a key part of life. In fact, maybe even the primary part of life. Maybe this material matrix that we live in is actually a, it exists with time and limitation and duality for our experience, but perhaps the creator is much more symbolic in nature and intuitive and maybe Greek tragedy or comedy and like maybe fiction actually is more with its um maybe the aspects in which it breaks from reality as we see it is actually more realistic in terms of how reality truly is. Um, and that while we live in, in the material, physical reality, this hologram, yeah, it's there for good reason. And the, this mayor that we live in, this hologram, graphic reality, like it's not to be denigrated as, oh, this is trash, this isn't worth, being in this isn't why are you here then why did you incarnate why did your higher self in all its wisdom decide to come here if this is just some trashy shit heap that is not worth being in oh this is a present planet oh this is so terrible i mean our relationship with the holographic reality or the holographic universe this physical realm, so to speak, that we're in. Um, our relationship with it, it can be harmonious or it can be discordant and unpleasant and one of suffering or it can be one of joy. We can live in a world of illusion that we wield in harmony with the divine and still be here in the physical, in the flesh at the same time. They can be unified together. I mean, everything is ultimately unified together after all. 
we don't need to have a Descartian sort of split where well, there's a divine, there's the physical, and we're going to just do one at a time or even just pick what we're going to deal with. I mean, like, it's just, it, just as it's missing the point, the focus entirely on the material and the real, it's also missing the point to, to just be like, fuck physical, let's all just be in the clouds. Look at the chakras, for example. Like, to get to each chakra, you need to have a foundation in the one below it, right? You need the foundation to the, the elements and the earth and the actual, and then you build up to the sacral chakra, the orange ray, from the red ray to the orange ray to the yellow ray to the heart, and then you go up, right? That's, so why, you don't just go one or the other. And if you do, you're kind of missing out on part of reality in a sense. And it seems that with his, Nietzsche seems to appreciate the unison of opposites. So he would probably realize that. He's not going all out idealist or all out realist here. And neither would I. So, Where were we? The satyr, the Dionysiac chorist, lives in a world granted existence under the religious sanction of the myth and the ritual. <coughs> I would add that, that the sanction of the divine, the creation and the manifestation, the physical world was is manifested by the divine, which is you, by the way, and everyone else you're co-creating with. It doesn't like exist in a vacuum. Um, although it is it kind of is created from the vacuum, which is the infinite source, but yeah. <clears throat> um, but, the tragedy begins with him. That the Dionysiac wisdom of tragedy begins through him is for us a phenomenon that is just as surprising as the original origin of tragedy out of the chorus. Perhaps we shall find a point of departure for our reflections in the claim of that the satyr, the invented natural being, relates to the cultural humanity as Dionysiac music relates to the civilization. Does? You could say the chorus almost reflects symbolically source as a whole, or rather us as a whole, as create the creator. I don't know if that's what he intended, but that kind of makes sense. Of the latter, Richard Wagner says that it is annulled by the music as lamplight is annulled by the light of day. In the same way, I believe, the Greek man of culture felt himself annulled in the face of the satire chorus.
And the immediate effect of Dionysiac tragedy is that state and society, the gulf separating man from man, make way for an overwhelming sense of unity that goes back to the very heart of nature. The metaphysical consolation with which, as I wish to point out, every true tragedy leaves us, that whatever superficial changes may occur, life is at bottom indestructibly powerful and joyful, is given concrete form as a satire chorus, a chorus of natural beings living irredeckably behind all civilization, as it were, remaining the same forever, regardless of the changing generations and the path of history. Do you know what I thought of when I read that? Machine elves. Machine elves. In a, you know, DMT machine, DMT machine elves, which I haven't seen, or at least not yet, because, yeah. So, the spirits that are there, you know, the nature of that aspect of reality is there, is universal and timeless. That's the point. The chorus was a consolation. So there's a chorus, a divine thing. Well, I've just already, but is the chorus the spirit world, the real uh, observers, the real um, audience, right? I mean, Shakespeare was saying life is just a stage and we are but its players. So there's an audience, right? I mean, aside from the fact that we are also the audience as well, but there is an audience that's not currently acting. Um, or at least, not, at least not on this stage, because there's a whole bunch of stages in the cosmos, right? Uh, I mean, like, if you get like Palladians and Arcturians watching or whatever, you know, they're on their core, their stage, and they're watching our stage, although technically it's all the same stage, but whatever. <laughs> so, um, the chorus was in a consolation to the Helen, thoughtful and uniquely susceptible as he was to the tenderest and deepest suffering, whose piercing gaze has seen to the core of the terrible destructions of world history and nature's cruelty and who runs the risk of longing for a Buddha-like denial of the will. He is saved by art, and through art he has saved himself, saved him for himself. I would say perhaps he's, Nietzsche's misunderstanding Buddhism there, because yes, there's a denial of ego, but there's also isn't there an acceptance, or at least in the New Age stuff, I admit it's not exactly completely the same as Buddhism, even if it's kind of doing the same thing. But there's this idea, okay, the wheel is like in a sack called yellow ray chakra, right? And that's the closest thing to ego anyway, in, if you look at the chakras. And you need to get to, to, get to heart chakra and above, you need to have each chakra in balance below it. And, not closed off or too open and has been balanced. Uh, that would mean that, yeah, it's not like a deprivation or a lack of, or constriction in where the will is, which would be the sacral chakra. You need it open and balanced, which means it's good, strong will to actually get to an open heart in the first place. 
but of course, Nietzsche wasn't coming from a society with an understanding of these things, like obviously not. And there was less exposure to Eastern Asiatic sort of religion for him anyway. Um, but at least he had enough exposure to know about, a bit about it. The ecstasy of the Dionysiac state, abolishing the habitual barriers and boundaries of existence, actually contains for its duration a lethargic element into which all past personal experience is plunged. Thus, through the gulf of oblivion, the worlds of everyday and Dionysiac reality become separated. But when one becomes once more, when one once more becomes aware of this everyday reality, it becomes repellent. This leads to the mood of aestheticism, a denial of the will. He does kind of have a point. Um, he has a bias, but he has a point. And it's all well like doing all this ego death stuff and um, this denial of self. And that's not unhelpful. It's just if I consider Eckhart Tolle and his uh, his teachings, the idea of presence, it's not oh living in the clouds, um, denying the physical world. It's living present in the moment where you are, grounded in the physical and yet connected to the non-physical simultaneously and just present. Um, the presence is an infinite nothingness which is the observer we are, not the false self of the ego, but the observer that it experiences everything. We experience the sensory um, information, but we are serious from, the, from this observation point that is beyond the sensory and the physical, and yet fundamentally experiences these things from a vantage point we are not a physical body, but uh, it's like us. The, our spirit body and our energy body is fundamentally aligned in its position with that while we are living our lives. And we observe and experience what the body experiences, so to speak. But we are the experiencer, the viewer, the observer. And we are infinite source. Um, but that does not mean we cut ourselves off from the the everyday physical reality. What it means is we bring presence and the divine into our everyday reality. It's actually the opposite. <clears throat> Although Nietzsche's talking about what happens if it goes awry and you just pull out completely for interaction with it. And that's actually not really true spirituality. It's almost like a spiritual ego thing um, to do that. Now Nietzsche was right that it would be detrimental to completely cut off from the physical and just purely go spiritual because like there's a unity to all things and the unity to the spiritual 
And there's no unity in a dualistic split where you just pick one half of reality. Like, I think you see my point. Um, Thus, through this gulf of oblivion, the worlds of the everyday and the Dionysian reality become separated, like you're saying, right? Um, this is, yeah, this is something that Dionysiac man shares with Hamlet. Both have truly seen to the essence of things. They have understood and action repels them, for their action can change nothing in the eternal essence of things. They consider it ludicrous or shameful that they would have to be expected to restore order to the chaotic world. Understanding kills action. Information depends on the veil of illusion. This is what Hamlet teaches us, not to the stock interpretation of Hamlet as a John of dreams who, from too much reflection, from an excess of possibilities, so to speak, fails to act. Although, as we know, um, uh, as we've come across so far reading this, Nietzsche talks about unifying the Apolline and the Dionysiac, right? So he doesn't say, okay, the Dionysiac is bullshit, fuck the Dionysiac, let's just have a supremacy of the will and the physical, always acting, always going, go, 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 go. Let's have a supremacy of the will and like fuck the spiritual and fuck anything more than that. Like, I honestly, words are power, so I feel uncomfortable even having said that. But he doesn't, I don't think he would mean that. Because um, he's talking about, he's not saying just pick one side of the duality. He's not saying go with the physical. In fact, he was very clear that going too real and grounded, but without the non-physical, without the uh, non-real, if you just focus on what's real and you're actually missing part of the picture. But now he's saying you don't want to just focus on the ethereal, ungrounded spiritual and deny the real. So he's very, he's actually making it very clear. First, don't deny the non-real, so to speak, or the fictional or the, the symbolic. Don't deny that. It's important. Secondly, he's saying don't deny the, don't deny the physical. Right? Don't go airy-fairy denying that you're grounded in an actual physical reality. Like, you're here for a reason, right? Don't deny your own will. Like, But he's saying these things simultaneously. He's not contradicting himself. He's suggesting here is an integration of these two things, which aligns very much with this idea of aligning with the Dionysiac and the Apolline, which also has a very Jungian vibe to it, or rather... Jung's ideas are very much seem to be influenced by Nietzsche. Um, yes. Hmm. This is going on for quite a while. I might actually try see if I can edit this in small pieces. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you'll see depending on how you watch this, whether I've edited it in small pieces. Uh, I don't know if I'll do that yet or not. That would delay me uploading it, but whatever. <laughs> um, okay. Are we close to the end of this section? Oh, yeah, we are. We are. Um, okay. 
Not reflection, not that. True understanding, insight into the terrible truth, outweighs every motive for action, for Hamlet and Dionysian man alike. No consolation will be of any use from now on. Longing passes over the world towards death. Beyond the gods themselves, existence radiantly reflected in the gods or in the immortal beyond is denied. Aware of the truth from a simple glimpse of it, all man can do now is see the, is the horror. All man can now see is the horror and absurdity of, exist, of existence. Now he understands what the symbolism of Ophelia's fate. Now he understands the wisdom of Selenius, Selenus, the, wisd, the god of the woods. It repels him. Here, in this supreme menace to the will, there approaches a redeeming, healing enchantress, art. She alone can turn these thoughts of repulsion at the horror and absurdity of existence into ideas compatible with life. These are the sublime, the taming of horror through art and comedy, the artistic release from the repellence of the absurd. The satyr chorus and the diathram is the salvation of Greek art, the frenzies described above were exhausted in the middle middle world of these Dionysiac attendants. So it can certainly be a reaction where you see your absolute tiny significance in the the place of all things, right? You see that your, how absurd reality is on some level, right? You see this and without a way of being able to cope with it or at least process it in a truly holistic way, it can be overwhelming and utterly horrifying, right? Now, there's this idea that beauty and horror are hair's breadth or breadth away. Was it awe? Awe and horror, um, both of them kind of, but it's more so awe and horror are like, it's kind of almost the same thing, but there's something else there when it's awe. It's not, it is kind of overwhelming, but In not fearing what's beyond your control, but having some sense of love for it or being able to accept what's beyond your control, there's an awe at understanding the divine how everything fits together in a elegant way beyond even a rationalistic understand any rational understanding and yet it's so huge and yet unfathomably all connects together in a way that is astounding and wonderful and 
joyous. And that's all, right? And that's, and the beauty is a feature of all, isn't it? Maybe. I'm not sure, but I do think that there's a connection between beauty and all. Whereas when you see that and there is a rejection of what you're seeing or a fear of it, and it's sort of, there's fight or flight mode. There's, okay, it's not anger, because you, you, it's something so beyond, that you can't even fight it. It's just too much, right? It's not, it's either, is it fear or is it sadness? Or is it a combination of the two? It's not hate. Um, that's almost something that has too much agency in that situation. If there's something that's so overwhelming, it's like, what? No, there's not even a way, any articulation. It's just, you know, someone goes pale and they just, Everything in them wants to retreat as much as possible, as fast as possible, away from it. No, 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 no. That's the vibe, right? Dread. Um, it's something beyond fear. An absolute primal, my existence is threatened with immediate obliteration feeling. Whether or not it's true, that's maybe the vibe of, or maybe maybe this is obvious, but I just felt like exploring it. And that, that um, unprocessed, it's where like, suppose you haven't done the inner work, you haven't processed, um, the negativity and the wounds within, um, and you're confronted with something that could be beautiful, but it's horrifying. And like, it's a bit like how, if you were to ever try hallucinogenics, but you're not ready, so to speak, you haven't done any inner work whatsoever, you might just be like, It's things like that that are either amazing, wonderful experiences or traumatic, um, right? It's about whether you can let go and flow with it and harmonize with it or whether it's just like, no, 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 you know? Um, I'm sure you get my point. Uh, I'm not gonna just focus on that. So what else is there we can finish off with here? So tragedy, in tragedy, there's this, the release comes from pathos. Um, I remember this when I studied art, actually. Um, by the character going through their tragic fall, you feel like you have released something from yourself, yourself, but without having gone through it. 
it's like an exposure to something negative, so to speak, allows you to confront it in some sense and go through an emotional experience of release. Whereas there's a different kind of release with comedy, which is also very important, where you come to a place of joy. So you, 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 you face the absurdity of everything and your timeliness. And yet you have, you feel joy in the face of it. Um, you laugh at it and at everything. And it just, that's comedy. Um, just as he said, the, the, the way you deal with horror through art is the sublime. And the way you release the repellence is of the absurd is comedy. So are these two different aspects that are dealt with? One is how small you are in the big scheme of things. And it's just like, like the whole thing of Lovecraft, right? It's just like, too like it could be too much potentially if you're not if you don't have a way to deal with it and tragedy can help you deal with that hell maybe Lovecraftian Lovecraft itself as the art the art that is Lovecraft and um, things like that are a way way for us to deal with us feeling small in the world and it can help even though. You're dealing with things that are very tragic and negative, you know, so to speak. And comedy is like, okay, the absurd part of that, that understanding of reality, that absurd part of reality, that might be too much if you take things too seriously. By lightening the load, by not taking it so seriously, by allowing ourselves to laugh and release in that way, we come to joy. It's an acceptance in comedy that allows you to get to joy. And by experiencing beauty and sublimeness and awe through tragedy, we, we have a release and an acceptance of horror and that overwhelmness in the face of our tininess as well. And the Dionysiac and art in more in a general sense allows us to deal with that. Art is a very fundamental thing. Now, what happens if we're too stuck in the real and the objective and the scientific? And what we end up with is there isn't, we don't have that way of dealing with, if there's less of that symbolism, less of that actually good art that really is truly symbolic, I mean, 
what is even even horror films have ended up becoming more of a gore fest. I mean, look at the Saw films. It's, it's, or, or it's like something like Deepest Creepers or something, which is just a joke. Like it's 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 I actually find it comedic watching Deepest Creepers, right? It's not meant to be funny, but it's hilarious, right? You're watching it and the characters are so obnoxious, you want them to die. <laughs> Have you ever felt that way? But anyway, uh, so, or they're, they're just acting so dumb in that situation. <laughs> anyway, anyway, so, uh, without that, what he's talking about in the last paragraph here, towards the end here, about the way in which tragedy and comedy uh, help us deal with the, the repellence in the face of our tiny, the, the tininess of us, the, the horror and the sense of repellence in the face of us being tiny in the universe the, and all of that, you know. Um, without that, then what we're, what people are just in a state of overwhelmed exhaustedness, constantly just fight or flight on edge, taking out on everyone else, because that's all they, they know how to do and they've got no way to process it. All they can do is just flail in incoherently and unconsciously. Um, luckily, that's actually a symptom of what you get just before awakening, actually. And Eckhart totally talks about that. Um, the stage before, the, the ego intensifies before it dies. So it's actually a good sign, but it's not the pleasant, most pleasant stage. And the collective unconscious or the collective conscious is going through that right now. Um, I mean, just look at society. I mean, it's kind of like, you know what I'm talking about. You can just, just look at the world, look at politics, for example. It's a clear example of it. Well, look at, look at the, uh, the C word and, and how people are responding to that. And uh, their utter terror, they, what are they willing to go along with? Uh, and how they're willing to act towards their fellow humanity in the face of it. Um, yes. Without a healthy, helpful, artistic and symbolic way to deal with it that isn't grounded in reality, but is fundamentally symbolic and right brain and intuitive and in line with almost like half of reality that's like like that you know that isn't just then like what he said it's like a a, whack, a house of wax hell i mean there was a horror film called house of wax i mean yeah i mean it's just like there's something fundamentally creepy about that it's like, well, I mean, they look realistic, right? Look, all these uh, celebrities. Um, now, then there's something just obviously there's dodginess when it comes to the way celebrities are used by the elites or whatever. But it, uh, even aside from that, um, so you get all these famous people that everyone worship pretty much uh, just for being famous or something. And like, they're all looking hyper-realistic. There's no art there. It's just like, it looks like they're there.
physically with you, except that something's off. That's the uncanny valley, right? Um, and that's supposed to be, we get stuff like that's That represents what we've got instead of art these days. And people can't cope with the tininess in the, in the universe and the all the, the the stuff that's hard to deal with in reality and all the you know what I mean what are we talking about all that the absurdity as well like people can't cope with that via that means right they, they need they need comedy and tragedy like the, the actual real deal right to deal with it and without that it's just well, I guess it forces people to do the inner work because that's all they can do, right? To deal with it. Um, people have to look within in this chaotic world because if you don't, you break apart or something. Um, and like, what, so this idea, okay, we are tiny, we're, we're this tiny, this, what we're told by mainstream scientists, we've got a tight, we're just tiny in a huge unforgiving world that we probably don't even have free will, that everything's deterministic, we're just ghosts in the machine, screaming in terror incoherently all the time, and that is something we should celebrate as the way it is forever. Oh, and let's, by the way, oh, yay, all this AI where we can just put, become cyborgs and take away even more of our humanity until we're just I, even more just psychically disintegrated into psychosis forever. Like, that sounds like uh, hell, like a, a dream of hell. Like, we need art we need we need tragedy and comedy to deal with reality it's very important and if we if it's being taken away or if we're in a situation where there's less of that we need to look within to find that or something like it, or build something new like that, without reliance and dependence on institutions or what have you, which, and authorities that don't have our interests at heart and aren't delivering a means to cope with the harshness of life at the moment. And this is purely a matter of self, even on a purely self-interest level, we have to do this. Um, because they're not really, it's difficult right now. I'm sure you know that. It, it, they're not, obviously it's not up to them to just take care of us, but they're not taking care of us. That is a fact. <laughs> um, Thing to, you know, luckily, I don't think we're going down the negative timelines, but like what they, the negative intentions of some of the people in charge are, well, well, very negative or whatever. <laughs> That's a judgment, but you know. Um, so 
what are we going to do? Are we just going to not have any means of processing our tininess in this absurd reality? Or are we actually going to find a way of processing reality in a healthy way? Um, maybe that is actually what Nietzsche is asking us here. So that was a good episode, I think. I, I am, I'm happy with how what I managed to explore there. Um, hopefully you enjoyed it too. And um, yeah, so uh, bye for now.